Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for tuning in here with me on Monday, June the 29th. Coming up on the show in a little bit, I'll be joined by my usual Monday guest, Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. We'll be discussing the use of video in the courtroom after more than 19,000 people tuned in to see the decision related to the December 2016 incident involving DeFonte Miller, which left him blinded in one eye. While a decision like this would usually come in court, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic led to the hearing being broadcast live on YouTube. What could this possibly mean for the future of court cases in Canada? Can we expect more use of video in these high-profile cases? We'll get into that and also talk a little bit about just how useful that might be in the justice system as a whole. So that'll be coming up in just a little bit. Kyla Lee will join me shortly. But to begin today's show, well, the school year is officially in the rearview mirror. It was an unorthodox year, to say the least, with COVID-19, of course, forcing kids to learn from home. Of course, many voluntarily went back to class on a part-time basis during the month of June. How did it go? Well, joining me on the line now is BC's Minister of Education, Rob Fleming. Minister Fleming, how are you doing here today? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to start by asking, you know, what the last day of school was Thursday. Have you had any chance to really think about and reflect on how things went during the school year yet? I have. Uh you know, I, I think of a number of things. Um, one was how the teaching profession and support staff and administrators and everybody who works with our kids in the school system really rallied uh, around a time of great uncertainty and charted a course that uh, kept uh, families intact and kept learners supported. And, um, you know, when we look back at the, uh, the fear around the school closure and the general lockdown of B.C. and uh, states and provinces and countries around the world uh, it was uh, it was very uncharted territory very very frightening in many ways but uh, as a province being in it together we we got through it together and I think that allowed us to be really one of the very few places in North America to safely restart schools in in June so I think there's there's some there's some pride at the end of the school year to see the Departments of Education of Washington and Oregon and California and uh, other provinces and territories saying, how did you guys do it? And wanting to uh, borrow heavily from our plans, uh, I think shows that we're in a good place for a strong restart in September, which is, which is a great place to be. Yeah, so when you talk about those plans that were put in place, right, to get kids back into the classroom, everything seemed to go pretty smoothly for the most part. Um, was there anything that, you know, as you went through this month of June that you had to tweak and, and reevaluate here moving forward? Was there anything that you that kind of stood out as something that, um, you know, perhaps could be improved here as we look towards September? Definitely. I think the remote uh, online learning systems that we created uh, you know, we bought a safe Zoom enterprise video conferencing platform. I think we onboarded about 35,000 teachers to use that to safely instruct kids remotely. Um, I think we could probably uh, have some peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, learning between teachers about, you know, some of the tricks that are effective to, to teach that way. And it's very different for different age groups, right? How do you support those learners? So I think there's a drive to excellence and also the, how much material is available online. Obviously, the entire BC curriculum is, but uh, 
it's not broken down into lesson plans that teachers learn. So there may be some case to put uh, more high-quality learning resources that are in uh, learning modules online, and we'll work with the teaching profession to do that. We've got some great partnerships, though, having said that, uh, in, in STEM sciences and other uh, academic disciplines that that uh, that are really good. And when the pandemic is all over, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what survives in terms of new technology tools that are useful for the learning process. But I think uh, having had to create something out of thin air, we'll continue to work on it and make it better because, as you know, we have to prepare for a second wave potentially uh, in uh, in the winter of uh, 2020, 2021. Yeah, and and that actually kind of follows into my next question here quite well. So, of course, in the last couple of weeks here, when we had our COVID-19 briefings, there was a couple of cases that were connected to to teachers, right? There was one at an independent school in the Fraser Valley and another at a public school in the same health authority there. Um, No no issues, it seemed like, when it comes to transmission throughout the school, right? Kids were not affected. Uh, But just what did you learn? Did you take anything from that to see kind of how, um, you know, the, the school system needs to react when there is a positive case in the school? Did you learn from any of those instances? I think the provincial health office uh, displayed once again that we're in very good hands in terms of their sophistication and expertise when you get uh, a case like that. And the contact tracing that was done was very thorough. It was instant. And uh, and it was contained. In the case of the independent school in the Fraser Valley, it was so close to the end of the school year that they decided to just close the school. But um, we probably already always knew that there was a very low risk of transmission and I think what we learned in June is that schools are actually the safest place um, to be uh, for kids and uh, employees when you look at the month of June and how many cases were developed around British Columbia uh, and the fact that only two can be linked to the school system and even then these were adults who were likely infected in the community or through their family unit uh, bringing it to the school, not the other way around. It wasn't. Uh, this wasn't a case of transmission happening at a school. Uh, but having said that, you know we know from places like Denmark and New Zealand, who we're watching most closely, because we think they have a similar population and a similar uh, good place in terms of pandemic management. Um, we look at we look at how they've done things, and and they've been incredibly safe relative to the rest of society. So. I think uh, British Columbians can take some some comfort from that going into the fall. That uh, BC schools uh, open safely, they can they can reopen safely again, and uh, and we can get through this, and we can uh, keep kids learning and uh, try and make things as normal as possible in, in, a, in a very unique, uh, unprecedented situation. Um, now, when the when I did see those two cases, right when I saw some some stories that were put out on the the two instances of teachers getting COVID nineteen, there was some parents I saw reacting, basically saying, "This is why I chose not to uh, send my kid back to classes. I wanted to see how this was going to play out over the course of this month." Um, now that we've had these kind of examples of of what could potentially happen and how those situations are going to be handled, um, you know, are you looking towards September? And it's probably going to depend to depend a lot on just how widespread COVID-19 is when we approach the end of August and into September, but is is school uh, going to be mandatory or is anyone registered for school going to be told they have to start returning to the classroom in some capacity when the fall semester begins? Well, how much we can open our schools in terms of how many kids we can have in them and what stage we can can, can be in 
uh, will be really up to the science of the pandemic and the leadership of the provincial health office, as it has been um, since this began. Uh, and we have we have plans in place and contingencies for for any situation we may be in. And uh, I, I would I would predict that we'll be in the same or a better place than we are today, which you know is really the top one percent of safe places around the world. So, look, British Columbians are just getting used to the uh, reopening restart plan in, in BC. They're they're starting to expand their bubbles. We're getting update, updates regularly that uh, that that is safe to do. We can flatten the curve and and do that and support businesses and more activities in our community and and, and schools are among them. So, I think um, the discussion that we should be having in British Columbia too is. Is about the very, very low risks, as Dr. Bonnie Henry has outlined, of reopening schools. And we also have to weigh that against the the impacts of uh, a lot of isolation, months and months of that, uh, learning loss, social and emotional well-being that comes from being around peers. And uh, it, it'll, until we have a vaccine, there'll never be a zero-risk situation. But if we can keep schools uh, in British Columbia being the lowest risk uh, institutions in our society, which they are today, and uh, safely have kids and staff working in those buildings again, we'll be in good shape. We'll have a functioning school system, and we'll be supporting kids uh, and their overall well-being for themselves and their families, and supporting their parents who are returning to work. and And we need to we need to strike that balance. And I think we've got there in June, but September is going to be a, a a new situation and uh, one that we can hope we can even be. Uh, in a position to, to start up even stronger. In. Uh, any idea, I guess, when you'll plan to release uh, maybe an updated plan of how school is going to work in September? Yes, we're going to release some substantial information in July uh, based on our COVID-19 uh, steering committee that we have in the K-12 education system. And uh, and then again in August. And uh, the final green light uh, around uh, what we can do and what the school system should prepare for will happen, I would think, around the third week of August under the direction of Dr. Bonnie Henry and the uh, and the province of BC, the government of BC. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Minister Fleming, I did want to ask you one more question before I let you go, just on a totally different topic, if that's okay. Um, Certainly. There is a petition right now in Kamloops that's calling for more black history to be taught in the district. I just wanted to quickly ask you, uh, Minister, while I have you, kind of what are your thoughts on, I guess, just history in general that's being taught in our education system? Like uh, this this particular case is looking for more black history. I personally am a proponent of more indigenous education, which I know is something that the, the school system has been working on here in BC and in our district specifically. I just wanted to get your thoughts about maybe how we can do better on these types of uh, specific subjects how can we look at these um, requests that are out there to to basically teach more of our our history more of culture um, you know any thoughts on how we can improve in these areas yeah I think there's lots of room for improvement and even before the events uh, in the United States and the protest waves around the world including here in Canada happened uh, there was a lot of work underway with the Black History Awareness Society and other organizations just because February is Black History Month each and every year, and we do have a lot of good curriculum resources, but um, not every kid gets to to learn that. Uh, so we're 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 going to work with the teaching profession. We're going to work with uh, advocacy organizations. I think uh, more content around indigenization of our school system. That's going to continue. There's lots of momentum there, which is positive, 
And I think there are uh, black and people of color communities in, in the historical development of our province that are underrepresented right now. And, and we're going to listen right now and see, see how we can work to make sure that kids are really learning about how the province of British Columbia originated, developed, the civil rights struggles that have enhanced the freedoms we all enjoy. And, and uh, I think that's really part of the uh, mandate around creating the educated citizen to participate in a democracy like uh, British Columbia and keep it vibrant and strong. Minister, thank you so much for your time here today. I really do appreciate it. And I know uh, a lot of work to do here over the course of the summer, I'm sure, for you. So you'll be busy. And uh, I, look forward, time. Yeah, I look forward to seeing the plans when you guys do release them. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. That was BC's Minister of Education, Rob Fleming. All right. Well, it is time for me to take a quick break here. But when I come back, it is Monday. So it's time for my usual Monday guest here, Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. So stick around. And the Jeff Andreas Show will be right back. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for being with me here on the 29th, the last Monday of June. Joining me now is Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing here today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks, as always, for taking the time. So let's just start here with uh, what happened in Toronto last week, and specifically we're going to be talking about the use of video. So I'll, just for some quick background here, Toronto police officer was found guilty of assault in the beating of a young black man more than three years ago while his brother was acquitted of all charges. Uh, Michael Terrio convicted of assault on Friday but found not guilty of aggravated assault or obstruction of justice in relation to the December 2016 incident involving DeFonte Miller, which left him blinded in one eye. The officer's brother was acquitted of aggravated assault and obstruction of justice. So while a decision like this would usually come in court, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic led to this hearing being broadcast live on YouTube. More than 19,000 people tuned in. Kyla, I'll just start with this. I mean, we see instances sort of in the U.S. where cases and decisions can be broadcasted, but this doesn't really happen in Canada, at least not from my experience. So uh, as a lawyer, just how did you feel being able to watch that decision come down on your computer last week? I thought it was amazing. I thought that this was something that represented a big shift forward for access to justice in Canada. And based on the number of people that tuned in, I think it's something that our public has been wanting for a long time. The, the opportunity to participate in the justice system by being an observer, which is a constitutionally guaranteed thing in Canadian law, and to be able to participate in a way that doesn't interrupt your daily life. Yeah, and, and like I said, more than 19,000 people tuned in. I mean, obviously, you would never have that many people being able to witness what happened unless it was broadcasted, right? Exactly. And, you know, we saw something very similar here uh, last year when the, uh, the Joe hearings were taking place. Um, there were lineups at the courthouse in Vancouver for people to get in, limited seating, limited room in the courthouse hallway where they were broadcasting um, just inside the courthouse building. And, and hundreds of people who wanted to attend that hearing or who had an interest in that hearing not being able to participate as observers of our justice system because there wasn't sufficient space for them. And cases that attract that much public interest and public attention are the perfect cases to be broadcast online where people can watch and pay attention and follow along as they want to do. Now, obviously, this particular case went online because of COVID-19, but do you see this potentially being something, now that it has happened, that could 
expand beyond the pandemic? And you've seen the interest here. I mean, maybe it'll take a few more cases that need to go online during this pandemic before we really start to see just how much of an appetite there is, I guess, for something like this. But do you see this as maybe a start to be able to expand this beyond just a pandemic? I do see this as a start to expand this beyond the pandemic. And our courts have always been reluctant to engage in online hearings and to have things online because they're concerned about the security. They're concerned about people interrupting the proceedings, hacking the feed, um, providing their message. And they're also concerned about people using excerpts from the proceedings in ways that are not appropriate. But so far, we've seen the way that this, this decision has been handled, the broadcasting of the judgment, be treated in the respectful way that our justice system demands. And I I think it sets a good precedent that we can trust the Canadian public and the public at large with decisions and controversial cases that attract a lot of attention and engage with complex social issues to treat those decisions and the broadcasting of court proceedings respectfully and appropriately. Yeah, and that actually goes into my next point here. I mean, obviously, when we're looking at a broadcast, this will help with transparency within uh, individual cases, right? Being able to see a full decision come down and how that decision actually does get made. Do you see any other benefits outside of that transparency? What else could uh, an online broadcast be beneficial for? Well, it can help people understand the way that different considerations are taken into account by judges when giving decisions. And this case is a perfect example of that, because this case touched on a lot of aspects of police violence against black people. It touched on a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement. And the judge addressed a lot of that in his judgment and in his reasons for judgment, addressing the larger social issue in which this this assault trial was situated. Um, And that was important, because all of the people who were watching it going, you know, this is the opportunity for vindication potentially for this individual. Um, This is an opportunity for our justice system to recognize that Black Lives Matter. They got to see the way in which those issues are uh, understood in our criminal justice system and hear commentary from the court that was very respectful um, of those interests and took them into consideration without using them inappropriately and making a finding in a criminal case by applying the wrong standard of proof. Uh, I have also heard, too, I mean, just talking about what is the appetite for this from people within the justice system, I have heard judges as well talk about why this could potentially be a useful tool. Um, Do you think that this would really help to be able to hold some judges to account on their decisions, being able to look a little bit more in-depth as to how they came to some of their conclusions, right? Because a lot of times you just got to read the reports and and basically hold those to face value because there's no real way to to go back and, and really dig deeper and examine other than what reporters who were in the case were able to provide for you in terms of information. Do you think this would really help, you know, in terms of being able to hold judges to account on their decisions as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, particularly where we've seen cases, you know, there was a couple of years ago uh, an uproar over a judge who made a comment about how he wanted a case to proceed because he wanted to get home. He was a visiting judge and he likes to sleep in his own bed. And there were complaints filed about that about that comment. But if the entire proceeding had been available um, at the time that these complaints were made and that people were, you know, causing a stir over this, they would have revealed that this was in the context of a discussion about multiple people being from out of town, scheduling and using the court time appropriately so that they could finish on time and they could streamline the process, which are things that judges need to do. And at the end of the day, it was revealed that the judge said nothing wrong. One comment was taken out of context. And we would avoid all of that if anybody could just log into YouTube, watch the decision and go, okay, nothing's out of context because I can have the full context at my fingertips. 
Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense and could save people a whole lot of time and energy when it comes to making those complaints. Uh, just before we shift gears here, too, I guess I'll just get uh, your thoughts on the actual decision itself. It was kind of a, a complex one to go through, but did you have any thoughts on the fact that, you know, Michael Terrio was convicted of assault but did get, um, you know, was found not guilty of aggregated assault or obstruction of justice and his brother Christian also acquitted of those charges? Uh, just any thoughts on the decision as a whole? There were quite a few unhappy people with what happened. People were very unhappy, um, and that's really an unfortunate aspect of our criminal justice system. Is it's it's not well, it's not unfortunate. It's actually important, but um, our criminal justice system isn't there um, to correct social wrongs, to address issues of of police violence and systemic racism against people of color. It doesn't serve to cure those problems in society. What a judge does in in a case is looks at the evidence and determines whether the prosecution has met a very high burden of proving something beyond a reasonable doubt. And the prosecution didn't meet that burden in this case. And that didn't mean that these people weren't guilty or that this wasn't something that was motivated uh, out, of, out of racism or as a result of systemic racism. That just meant that the evidence wasn't there in this case to prove it. And that leaves a lot of people feeling really dissatisfied because the vindication that people are hoping for doesn't come. Um, but it's an uncomfortable truth about our justice system that this is the important standard that keeps innocent people from being being convicted. And actually that standard can protect a lot of people of color because we see higher rates of wrongful conviction when it comes to Indigenous people, Black people, and people of color in Canada and the United States. Uh, I'm joined on the line here by Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Now, Kyla, I did want to shift gears here a little bit and revisit something that you and I have talked about as well in the past, and it's a case involving Uber drivers. So just, again, for some quick background, so the man behind this planned class action, David Heller, is a uh, Uber Eats driver in Toronto, a service, of course, which delivers food to people at home. Uh, he argues that Uber drivers are employees, which entitles them to protections under Ontario's Employment Standards Act. Uh, but to become an Uber, Uber driver, you have to accept terms uh, and standards agreement and included in that is that you have to go through arbitration in the Netherlands, um, which is where they have uh, basically moved all of their, their legal uh, fights for Uber specifically is going into the Holland system. I mean, it was found that it was kind of an unfair bargaining chip here and amounted to contracting out of unemployment standard. Uh, I just, you know, happy to see the fact that uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has cleared the way for Uber drivers to take that next step in their fight to be recognized as employees. I think this is something that's important for all those, um, you know, uh, what do we call it, ride-hailing drivers out there, especially as it makes a big expansion here in B.C. And it doesn't just affect people who are ride-hailing drivers, you know, working for Uber. This affects anybody working in the gig economy or anybody subject to any sort of forced arbitration clause that takes them out of their home jurisdiction and moves it to a different location. The Supreme Court of Canada was incredibly critical about how unconscionable it is to put in these, these arbitration clauses that effectively deprive a person of any remedy um, in settling some type of contract-related dispute. And I think we'll see the fallout from this being that many of those clauses, which are standard in most of the things we click yes to without reading, are going to fail for being unconscionable. Um, and, and this, of course, is something that's being looked at specifically in Ontario, but will have impacts far beyond just Ontario. This would, I think, would be Canada-wide. But d does this potentially have um, impacts beyond Canada? Could this, as, of course, Uber drivers are all over the world now, could this have any impact beyond just the Canadian borders? 
Well, no court outside of Canada is required to follow a Canadian ruling. The reality is that because our Supreme Court of Canada has come out and said this, and because they're, you know, the top court of, of, you know, a big country in the world, other courts will look to what other jurisdictions are doing about common legal problems. So anybody in a a Commonwealth legal system um, or a legal system like the United States are going to look potentially to what we've done here with this issue and say, well, you know, this decision makes sense. It's well-reasoned. This legal system is similar to ours. The unfairness is the same. The difficulty accessing it is the same. The power imbalance is the same. And so we should reach a similar conclusion because this seems to be the appropriate conclusion. Perfect. And I guess I'll just ask one more question here for you, Kyla, but is it at all, in your opinion, just really bizarre to see a company that operates in Canada and is hiring people to work in Canada to be able to, you know, have their their um, court rulings or their arbitration um, I- issues go through a foreign country? Doesn't that seem something that shouldn't be allowed? And, and is it uncommon? It's not uncommon. It's been incredibly uh, popular for multinational corporations to do things like this, especially in the advent of gig economy type work, um, where things are largely done with online agreements. Um, and it, it, it's done, in, in my view, to deprive people of their rights, their right to say that they're an employee or their right to assert a breach of the employment contract. It's done to protect the company at the cost of basic human decency. And it's good to see that this is being uh, shunned by our court and good to see that these practices are being treated for uh, for the inappropriate and unacceptable manner in which they, they occur. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting case, and uh, I'm interested to follow this class action lawsuit if it does indeed continue to move forward. I think it's important for all those drivers, and you mentioned it goes far beyond just drivers of ride-hailing services as well. So it'll be interesting to follow, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again in the future. But thanks so much for your time here today, Kyla. As always, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. There's Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. And just to go back very, very quickly on this case involving uh, David Heller, um, he talks a little bit about just how much he was earning. I mean, he earns about four to six hundred dollars a week before paying taxes and expenses, which of course is using his own vehicle and working forty to fifty hours a week. That amounts to about twenty one thousand and thirty one thousand dollars annually, right? Somewhere between that is about what he would be making on an annual basis. This works out to ten to twelve dollars an hour. Well, I mean, obviously we're talking about Ontario case. The minimum wage there is $14 an hour. It's a little bit more here now in BC. We're making 10 to $12 an hour. I definitely would have a problem with that. Um, and of course, you know, you're working out of your own vehicle. You got to pay for your gas. You got to pay for your mechanical repairs. You got to pay, uh, you know, to have your, your vehicle cleaned if something happens while you're taking someone home. We know there's a lot of issues when it comes to, you know, picking up people late at night and maybe making a mess in the backseat of the vehicle. It happens. And these are expenses that people have to deal with and earning 10 to $12 an hour to do it. I think they deserve maybe a little bit more than that. But of course, when that would happen, that would mean our cost of our ride hailing service could go up as well. And well, we'll talk a little bit more about how that impacts the taxi industry just a little bit after this. So I'm going to take a quick break here. Thanks so much for sticking around here. The Jeff Andreas Show will be back after this, and we'll continue to look into what's going on with taxis here in BC. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. 
Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show. Thanks for being with me here on Monday, last Monday of June here on the 29th. It looks like some relief is coming to taxi and limousine operators. Yeah, the province announced today that those companies will pay less to keep their vehicles on the road as it looks to support the industry during the COVID-19 pandemic. Transportation Minister Claire Trevena says it has heard from operators and drivers about the impact of COVID-19 on British Columbians who make their living in the taxi industry. Lowering the annual license fee is just one of the ways the government can step in and help the industry as it continues to reopen and recover together. Now, the move actually dates back to last Monday when the annual license renewal fee was reduced for commercial operators who hold a passenger-directed vehicle authorization, which includes taxi and limo operators. So prior to the change, these licenses paid an annual fee of $100 per vehicle with no overall fee cap. Well... It has now been cut in half to $50 per vehicle with a license fee cap of $5,000. A spokesperson for the Vancouver Taxi Association is quoted as saying, there has been significant impacts on the industry as a result of the pandemic. She said it's been working closely with the province and are pleased with the change. So in addition to the temporary measures to support the passenger transportation Sorry, additional temporary measures to support the passenger transportation industry include waiving plate fees for all operators during COVID-19, allowing eligible licensees to defer their passenger transportation renewal fee for up to six months, and allowing insurance payments to be temporarily suspended for fleet and non-fleet customers. So definitely something that is being done to try to help get these companies through this pandemic. Of course, it's been very difficult on pretty well every industry out there and taxi companies have seen a dramatic loss of business as a result of fewer people of course being out on the streets fewer people needing rides to get places like work like school like wherever you might be going to get groceries there's just less and less of that happening and of course that results in fewer um, fewer people hiring drivers to take them to these locations so cutting the license paid fee, annual fee of hundred dollars per vehicle in half to fifty dollars per vehicle and putting a cap of five thousand dollars i think is going to help these companies and of course you know we've heard a lot of complaints from them as regards to ride hailing services which are now starting to become more and more prevalent here in british columbia uh here in kamloops specifically right we're looking ahead to wednesday when the launch of cabu ride is going to take effect what is that going to have in terms of an impact on um you know just the competition for customers will that help lower prices will it uh, potentially put people out of business i don't know exactly what the impacts will be i haven't seen that really happen in other places but it definitely has had an impact on their ability to hire clients uh, to be able to drive them from point a to point b will that have that same effect here i'm guessing it probably will but we'll see and there's also of course the issue which i talked about here in my last segment with kyla lee around uber and the fact that a driver works uh, for about 10 to $12 an hour. Well, that's quite a bit less than what our minimum wage is right now. So we'll see if that is the case here as well. Will they be able to earn a livable wage as a result of being a ride-hailing driver? Not 100% sure yet. We'll see when things start to pick up here in Kamloops on Wednesday. All right, well, on that note, it's about time for me to wrap things up. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed a time while it lasted. Have a great rest of your day, and I'll be back here tomorrow at noon.